0: Now, atheists like to say that all religious faith is blind faith. They say, take the resurrection of Jesus. Because dead people say dead, to believe in the resurrection, to believe that Jesus was raised, means that Christians have to close their eyes to the facts and believe anyway. That's what atheists say. What do you think? Is religious faith blind faith? Does it ignore the facts and believe anyway? Well, this is what we're going to consider this morning. So let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you will open our hearts and minds to hear what your spirit wants us to hear. Mould and shape us to be more like Jesus. Through his name we pray. Amen. So the context of today's sermon is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, a verse that you will be familiar with. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, in a previous sermon, we saw that there were two broad principles for giving a reason for the hope that we have in Jesus. Now, the first broad principle that we looked at is sharing our personal testimony. Now, last week we looked at what a personal testimony was, how to prepare it, and how to deliver it. So how did you get on with your 100-word limit? I have talked to some folk about it. It's a bit of a struggle to keep it to 100 words, but it's a good exercise to do, and if if you get it in a way that's kind of a hundred words, when you share that, then people are more likely to ask you questions and you can springboard into other conversations. So that's the first broad principle when it comes to giving a reason why we hope in Jesus. God is a personal God, and he wants to have a personal relationship with others and ourselves, so I suggest that's what we lead with. But not everyone we speak to is happy with that. They will say things like, well, that's wonderful for you, but... It doesn't mean anything to me. And that's why the second broad strategy that we'll be looking at today is very important, and that's presenting evidence for the reason why we hope in Jesus. So that when people ask us, we can have objective evidence because our faith is not blind faith. Our faith is reasoned faith. Our faith is based on evidence. It's not just because we've had a personal experience with Jesus, but because there is external evidence. And today today we're going to look at the nature of faith, what it is, and then we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians to look at the evidence we find there for the resurrection, so that we can be prepared to give a reason why we hope in Jesus. So first of all, the nature of faith. What's faith? Well, we exercise faith in in everyday life, as in religious faith. And in many respects, the faith that we use, say, to get into an airplane is no different to the faith that we exercise in Jesus. Let me explain. I don't know how you feel about flying. Some people think it's a bit of an adventure. Some people get very nervous when they fly. However, whenever you get into a plane, you are exercising a serious amount of faith, Why? Because we know if you get a big metal container and you fill it full of people, suspend it a kilometre above the air and let it go, we know that it's going to plummet to earth. So we have very good reasons to be at least nervous before we get into a plane. So on one hand, we have what the scientists call the law of gravity, but we still get into a plane. Why? Because on the other hand, there are the laws of aerodynamics, And the laws of aerodynamics show us how we can get a large metal container safely flying through the air. So every time we get onto a plane, we exercise reasoned faith, evidence-based faith. Because on the one hand we have the law of gravity, but on the other, the laws of aerodynamics. And not only that, all over the world, every day, tens if not hundreds of thousands of planes take to the air and land safely. So we exercise faith every time we get into a plane. And it's similar with religious faith. And we're going to focus on the resurrection this morning. There are other areas of our faith. But take the resurrection. Was Jesus raised from the dead? Because we know on the one hand, dead people stay dead. It's a bit of a law of nature, isn't it? Now, sometimes in some situations, maybe on the operating theatre, someone may die. But the medical team, because they're experienced and skilled, may resuscitate that person. Wonderful, isn't it? However, that person may go to live on for decades. Eventually, they're going to die, and eventually they're going to stay dead. And so, when it comes to our faith, on the one hand, we have the law of death, where dead people stay dead. and the other hand, we have evidence for the resurrection of Jesus And that's what we're going to turn to now in 1 Corinthians, because there is compelling evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, just like there is compelling evidence from the law of aerodynamics that we can fly. So let's look at the evidence for the resurrection. We have faith in flying, we have faith in the resurrection. Evidence for the resurrection. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 is a great place to start. But you may be thinking as I'm talking, is it even possible to gain evidence for a claim made by Christians that 2,000 years ago, a person who at the time didn't mean anything died and was raised from the dead? I mean, what, what would actually evidence look like? Well, let's consider the types of evidence, the categories of evidence. There are different types of evidence. Well, first of all, there is scientific evidence, Now, scientific evidence largely exists of repeated experiments or observations. That's how science works. Can we use this for the resurrection of Jesus? Well, no, because it's a one-off. So scientific evidence is not something that we'll look at. What about legal evidence? Is there legal evidence? Now, legal evidence is largely based on eyewitnesses, isn't it? So you you get to court and you say, well, this happened to me, or I saw this witness. Are there any eyewitnesses to the resurrection? Well, yes and no. I'll come to the yes soon. But no, there's nobody alive today that can come and say, I saw Jesus rise from the dead 2,000 years ago. And then there is historical evidence. Now, historical evidence is largely based on documents recorded events that historians weigh up their accuracy and their authenticity and they sift through and they make decisions on the reliability of ancient documents. Have we got reliable ancient documents testifying to the resurrection of Jesus? Yes, we have. It's called the New Testament. And from a historical point of view, they are Very accurate. Let me do a bit of a comparison to show you what I mean here. Here's a question. Let's look at ancient history. How do we know that Julius Caesar invaded and conquered Gaul, that's northern France, by 50 BC? Now, how do we know that from a historical point of view? I'll tell you how I know, because as a kid, I read asterisk books. Are you familiar with asterisk Every asterisk book that I can remember starts off with this panel here, and the panel shows you, just like it is up there, how the Romans invaded and conquered Gaul in 50 BC. So for some reason, that's stuck in my mind. Is that reliable historic evidence? (laughs) Obviously not. What is the historical reliable evidence that Caesar invaded Gaul? Well, Julius Caesar himself wrote out an account, like a diary of the war. Now, what's happened, of course, that original diary is gone, but there are copies and there are copies and there are copies. And so today there are nine copies, full copies, of Caesar's account of invading Gaul, and there's a 900-gap between the event and the oldest copy. Okay, so that's what historians deal with. And so all modern historians are. No, believe that this is what happened, and this is an accurate record of how Julius Caesar invaded um, Gaul, northern France. Now let's compare this with the New Testament. There are not nine copies, full copies of the New Testament, but when it comes to the New Testament, there are hundreds of copies. And there are even more partial fragments. You know, instead of a whole New Testament, there are bits of this Gospel and that Gospel. There are hundreds and hundreds. And there's not a 900-year gap between the oldest copies, but just a 100-years gap between the oldest fragment. And so from an historical point of view, the New Testament is a very accurate record of what happened. Now, for some reason historians don't blink an eye when it comes to the authenticity of Caesar invading Gaul in 50 BC but they are not too interested in the resurrection of Jesus. We bit of double standards there, but that's just the way it is. So that's that's my way of encouraging you to believe that we're looking at historical evidence and that we can be confident that this is authentic and accurate historical evidence. So what is this historical Evidence Well, getting back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And there's a problem in the church in Corinth because there's this false teaching going amongst the local church that Jesus only rose from the dead spiritually. He didn't rise from the dead physically, historically. And so Paul is writing to say, no, Jesus did rise from the dead physically, in the body, and so will you. So let's see the evidence that he puts before the church in Corinth for the physical resurrection of Jesus. And so what we're going to do look here is prophecy fulfilled. This is the first evidence that we have in 1 Corinthians. 4, this is verse 3, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ Died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, just the first thing I want to point out, and it is a little bit of an aside notice how that Paul talks about the resurrection as the first importance. You know, the first importance for the local church is not to love one another. The first importance of the church is not to obey the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. The first importance of any church is not to come every Sunday. Now these are important things, but the Bible is very clear that our first importance is the resurrection of Jesus. That's the reason why we're here. The other things are important, but we need to put the first things first. And sadly, some local churches get completely distracted and put other things which are good above the resurrection or the proclamation that Jesus has risen from the dead. That's a little bit of an aside, but I think a very important aside. But what about prophecy fulfilled? Do you notice up there where Paul says twice, according to the scriptures? He was saying that Jesus was died, was predicted in the scriptures, that he would be raised again, was predicted in the Scriptures. And these predictions is what Christians call prophecies. We call them prophecies, don't we? Messianic prophecies. And there are many messianic prophecies scattered through the Bible. The first one is found in chapter 3 of Genesis, predicting the coming of Jesus. And the last messianic prophecy is in the very last verses of the Old Testament in Malachi. And scattered through the Old Testament are hundreds of predictions that Jesus eventually fulfilled. We haven't got time to look at them all. We're going to focus on five that are found in uh, Psalm 22. So if we have a look at Psalm 22 and have a look at the prophecies fulfilled by Jesus on the cross, starting from verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you're familiar with what happened on the cross, if you're familiar with the passion of Jesus, you will know that these are the words that Jesus cried out on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we call this the cry of dereliction. Now, some sceptics will say, well, Jesus knew about that, and he just said those words. And actually, I agree. I think that Jesus on the cross knew Psalm 22 and that he was quoting that verse and by implication, everything in it. In Jesus' day, they didn't have, let's turn to Psalm 22. What they did is they said, let's turn to, and then they would speak the first word, the uh, first sentence, because they didn't have the numbers that we did. So I would say, today we're going to read from my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you would all turn to Psalm 22, equivalent. Anyway, anyway, a little bit of an aside. But isn't it interesting that that is Psalm 22 that Jesus quotes? Now let's turn to the actual predictions, the five. I'm going to read uh, verses 16 to 18. See if you can pick the five prophecies in these verses that Jesus fulfilled on the cross. Starting at verse 16. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. This was written 900 years to be before Jesus' time. So what are the five prophecies, the five predictions that are predicted here fulfilled on the cross? Well, the first one, a band of evil men. Now, this is referring to the religious leaders who accused Jesus Jesus before Pilate, they had him tried within their own court in a legal trial and had him dragged off to the cross. And there they were at the foot of the cross and they sneered at Jesus. And so here in Psalm 22, we have that predicted, a band of evil men encircle me. They were around the foot of the cross, sneering at Jesus. That's the first prediction. Second prediction pierced hands and feet. And here we have a graphic description of the crucifixion. Now, the crucifixion was not a thing when this was written by King David. So it's not like King David was walking down the road and saw someone crucified and thought, oh, I'm going to use that in my next song that I write. So crucifixion wasn't a thing, and yet David writes about the Messiah having his hands and his feet The next reference is I can count my bones. Again, a reference to the physical torture of the cross, because as you're hanging on the cross, it was quite common for the shoulders and the bones to be dislocated. Uh, The fourth prophecy is that people gloat and stare. Now it wasn't just the religious leaders, but it was the general public that came to the cross and mocked Jesus. And finally, probably one of the most specific prophecies in the Old Testament when it comes to the crucifixion, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. How could anyone know that 900 years before Jesus? Let alone these whole five predictions, let alone what biblical scholars say is up to two, 300 predictions that Jesus fulfilled at his death and his resurrection. And this is compelling evidence for the resurrection of Jesus because it is unprecedented. There is nothing like it in recorded human history where someone has had a number of prophecies or predictions specifically fulfilled as Jesus Christ. And so, is our faith blind faith? No. Because on the one hand, we have the law of death. We're dead, people stay dead. But on the other hand, we have these fulfilled prophecies. Specific, unexplainable, apart from the hand of God. So that's the first objective evidence that we can share with folk if they ask us for the reason why we believe in Jesus. Let's move on to the second evidence that Paul uses for the church in Corinth. And that's all to do with eyewitnesses. So let's listen to the proof from eyewitnesses on from verses 5 to 8. And then Jesus, he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, that some have fallen asleep, that means some of them have died. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So how does this help us today? These 500 plus eyewitnesses done it alive, so we can't ask them ourselves. However, here's the thing, 1 Corinthians was written just over 20 years after the resurrection. And though some of the 500 had died, many hadn't. And Paul is telling the church in Corinth, do you think Jesus just rose spiritually? No. He rose physically. Here's a list of names that you can ask, because they saw him. Now think of it this way. It's been over 20, just over 20 years since the 9-11 attack on the Twin Towers. Now, though there were about 3,000 people killed and only a handful of people survived who were actually in the building when the plane struck, many of the first responders survived, not to mention hundreds and hundreds in the general public who were caught up as the, the Twin Towers collapsed. Now, 20 years later, if you ask any of those 9-11 eyewitnesses what happened, do you think they'll have forgotten? Some of the details might be a bit blurry, but they'll tell you I was there. Now, imagine for a moment that there was no internet, and someone said, oh, actually, I don't believe that happened. I just think that that's a bunch of fake news that the Americans have made up so that they can go to war and all that sort of stuff. We would say, go and speak to the eyewitnesses. They are still alive, and they will tell you with passion what happened. And it's the same when it comes to the resurrection and the empty tomb. There was still, 20 years later, out of those 500 plus, probably over half of them were still alive and ready to testify. And look at it this way. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and Paul and all the other churches were saying that he did, there would have been people there who had known different. There would have been people there who had seen the body of Jesus and knew where it was. They would have dragged it out within the first week. Or they would have been continually criticising the early church and saying, no, we saw the dead body of Jesus. We know where the bones are, but it's never happened. Because the eyewitnesses were not contradicted. The eyewitnesses were credible and remain credible and add significant weight to the resurrection of Jesus. So on the one hand, we have the law of death. Dead people stay dead. But on the other hand, we have the the testimony of fulfilled prophecy and the testimony of eyewitnesses. Now, there is more evidence. I've only given you two lots of evidence for the resurrection. There are other evidences from history that make believing in the rising of Jesus compelling. Compelling evidence. Let's sum up. Let's pull these things together. So we're in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter we are told, always be prepared. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks us to give the reasons for the hope that we have. So when someone asks us why we believe in Jesus, then we have our personal testimony. Jesus is real to me, let me tell you how. However, there are other reasons why we believe in Jesus, not just personal experience. As we've seen today, and just touched the surface, there are sound, compelling, objective evidence for believing in Jesus. we just looked at fulfilled prophecy and eyewitness accounts, clear evidence, objective evidence to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you know someone who's interested or you're interested in yourselves, then I can re- recommend books by the author Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel uh, was a non-Christian cynic when it came to religious faith. He was a investigative reporter in Chicago. His wife became a Christian, so it did soften him a little bit. And then as he was covering various stories, he ran into Christians that were doing things like running food banks and things like that, and eventually became a Christian. And he moved from how can you possibly believe in the resurrection investigative reporter, to now I believe in the resurrection and these are the reasons why. And so I can recommend his books either for yourself, if you're interested, or if someone you're talking to wants to know more, recommend these books. So I want to finish with that comparison that we started with. Why do I have faith that an airplane will get me to my destination safely? Because on the one hand, I have the law of gravity but on the other hand there are the laws of aerodynamics and so when I get into a plane I may not do this consciously but I know the law of aerodynamics is going to get me safely to my my destination and not only this for the last hundred years since the invention of powered flight hundreds of millions of people have flown safely so I have faith and I get on the plane. Now, why do I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? Because on one hand, dead people say dead. However, on the other hand, there is compelling evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And I believe I have faith in that compelling evidence. And not only that, in the last 2,000 years since Jesus was raised, hundreds of millions of people have also trusted Jesus with their life. And so I have faith. And I follow Jesus. And you can too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, faith is such a complicated thing sometimes. We worry about it and have we got enough. But at the end of the day, Lord, it's trusting in you even when we can't see all of the answers, even when we have doubts in the back of our mind. And so, Lord, we thank you for the gift of faith that you have given us, and we pray that you will help our faith to grow and to strengthen. And when opportunity comes, we pray that you will help us to give a reason for why we have our hope in Jesus. We pray this through his name. Amen.